Hello, everybody. This is Mark Fines, and welcome to The Mark Fines Show. And this is your one-stop shop for everything having to do with liberty, freedom, the American way, and frankly, just the right way of living your life. And today, I want to welcome Christopher Stone, and he's a senior fellow for space studies at the Mitchell Institute for Space Power Advantage Research Center. And he's going to be talking to us about uh, space technologies and where all of this fits in with uh, our position in the world right now. And as you guys know, uh, we are really just stuck in a place where there's a lot going on geopolitically around the world. There's a lot of threats that are facing the United States. And quite frankly, I, for one, am very worried that we're not paying attention to a lot of the movement that's going on. We seem to be hyper-focused on certain issues, whether it's the Smollett case, whether it's what's going on in Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, COVID-19, the different variants, all these different issues are going on at one time. And we're not really paying attention to the other issues that are going on that face uh, our nation. And that's something that we wanted to kind of change things up a little bit today in our conversation and talk to Christopher about this. And, and he can help give us a better perspective on the threats that we face in space and really kind of the ideology and the ways of thinking that our adversaries have. So with that, Christopher, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks very much. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I I am sure I butchered your title again. I tried to, to practice that going into this, but that's one heck of a title. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so um, the Space Power Advantage Research Center at the Mitchell Institute um, was created in about May of this, this year um, to get after the space power uh, requirements and threats out there that people had been, you know, looking at from other think tanks around the area, but at the same time, we thought they weren't focused enough on that issue. And while the Mitchell Institute has typically been sort of the go-to place for um, military air power and air power strategy-related discussions, um, we we really didn't see anybody that was handling the space power issues in, in a military or strategic sense. We have several think tanks that talk kind of about um, you know, the norms of behavior, the diplomatic stuff, the commercial and civil exploration, the technical stuff, but nobody really puts it all together from a, a strategic uh, military standpoint. And so I was brought in as the, as the senior fellow um, in May, and we have a, a research analyst, and uh, I retired uh, General, uh, General Chilton, uh, who is our explorer chair for space warfighting studies. He's sort of our de facto head. And we, we put together um, op-eds and reports and studies and uh, host a bunch of events, both online and in person in the D.C. area, uh, that focus on those issues. Okay. And so talk to us a little bit about the, the big picture. What, what do we as Americans need to know about what's going on in, in space? Well, that's a, that's a tall order of a question. There is quite a bit. And one of the things that I would kind of tell the listeners up front is that there's a lot of things like you were mentioned that are going on and and it's easy to focus on what's kind of in front of your face but the the issue in space is one that affects everybody's lives not just a military sense but from a societal and an economic sense in fact space power affects all what's known as the instruments of national power so everything that we address as a country from diplomatic information military and economic um, it all has a space power connection to it, and without 
our current uh, space power critical infrastructure, um, we wouldn't be able to have the, the life that we're so used to living. So I'll just give you a little bit of that, and then I'll get into the bigger strategic mm -hmm. issues. So, so from the standpoint of everyday life, for example, a lot of folks just it's a kind of out of sight, out of mind, and people don't realize how much space power is in their life. So, for example, your banking um, runs runs through space. Your whenever you pump gas at the station, the uh, the financial transactions with your cards and stuff, and the timing signals to operate those. Those pumps are routed through the GPS constellation. Um, transportation industries, whether it's ship or air or land, are all tracked, maintained, and communicated through satellite means. Um, our, our energy sector, the timing signals from GPS are tied to that, as well as satellite communications as well. So without um, all of that, even even your TV, a lot of people have satellite television or even cable television that are routed through satellites. So everybody's life, pretty much the way they, the way they live, the way they, they conduct business, um, just doing everyday life is tied to space power. And our economic system um, is pretty reliant upon that. And our military uh, ability to defend ourselves and our allies are tied to space. So um, even though it's out of sight, out of mind, it's it's very much tied to to space and and also cell phones. I almost forgot cell phones. So so that's basically it, it's a societal issue. It's a it's a American person's issue. It's not just a Pentagon issue. Uh, we also conduct intelligence and do military uh, operations in, in through space. Um, and now we've had a space force in a U.S. Space Command, two separate entities of the of the Department of Defense that are created to get after um, two very big and important parts of, of the space issue dealing with primarily the Chinese and the Russians. So mm -hmm. that's kind of in a starting layout, the foundations of the, of the discussion, that's what we have to deal with. Okay, so you mentioned the, the Chinese and the, and the Russians. Um, what can you tell us about what's going on in that realm? Again, I think most Americans, in fact, I'm certain that most Americans don't understand understand the threat that we face in both of these realms, particularly with the Chinese. And mm -hmm. uh, this is starting to become uh, more of a forefront issue, I think, as we see uh, what, what has happened with Corona-19, the origins of Corona-19. And it's bringing focus, because we've had a number of years, let's be honest, where we were focused on Russia and the, the idea that there was, you know, uh, Donald Trump was colluding with the Russians and we had this invest, big investigation. This turned out not to be true. And, and, and I'm not trying to relitigate that entire scenario. I'm just saying that there was a lot of attention that was put on that. And it was almost to the exclusion of looking at anything else for most Americans. And you know, I, I know there's people in the Intel world that uh, are watching these things, but I think, but I think for most Americans, China kind of was off the, the, the radar, so to speak, but that's kind of coming back now. And what, what do you see as, as far as the threat is concerned there? What do we need to be worried about as, as, as Americans on the China threat? Well, with China specifically, I mean, both China and Russia are are issues in when it comes to space power threats and, and, and issues of strategy. But from the Chinese-specific side, there's, there's a lot of layers there. So from a broad strategic sense, um, the, the Chinese are very, very good at, at information warfare, yeah. which basically means their, their way to shape a narrative 
uh, or to use other countries' medias and things to try to make things look more positive toward toward a rising China, which is kind of what people were afraid that a lot of that um, a lot of that lack of discussion or on China was about. However, uh, the last administration was pretty big on highlighting the the, the issues with the Chinese both from an economic standpoint and a military rising standpoint out in the places like the South China Sea and, and uh, Asia and with what's called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is their, their, sort of their, their way of, of gaining influence and trying to displace the U.S.-led international order with a Chinese-led international order, um, which, which is, has a lot of layers to it, but it's essentially primarily based upon their, their unique worldview about themselves United States and uh, and the world itself. Um, from a space standpoint, though, the Chinese have been assessed by most publicly released intel sources as the most rapidly uh, advancing space power in the world, second only to the United States from the standpoint of of, uh, of space technology. But also, they're they're rapidly deploying um, what's called counter space systems, which essentially are anti satellite missiles. Um, lasers and other other systems that are meant to deny, degrade, or destroy our our, our critical infrastructure in space, as I refer to it, um, that we're so reliant upon that I mentioned earlier, both from a military standpoint and just an economic standpoint. So there's there's quite a bit going on up there. There's in space um, space weapons. There are ground based space weapons, and then there's just the the support infrastructure they're building to have eyes and ears on what's going on in Earth. And they're reaching out into near-Earth space um, from a resources uh, dominant standpoint. So one of the things that the Chinese have been talked about mostly with regard to South China Sea and other, this Belt and Road Initiative is, is having access to rare earth metals and other, other resources that are necessary for our military, our economy, and, and trade. And if they can dominate all those resources, then they'll have the ability to build the world's largest economy. So far, we're still technically the world's largest economy, but some people believe that they've already surpassed us, and others believe they're going to surpass us soon, depending on who you ask. So with, with the fact that they have so many billions of people, and we only typically have about 380 80 million um, from the standpoint of population and, and worker uh, strength and things of that sort, they definitely have a lot more to work with. So, and numbers for the military, is, actually. I mean, not just oh, workers, yeah, that, but they they could you know staff them. And actually, uh, am I correct now? Do they have the largest standing military in the world right now? Um, if not the largest, one of the largest, because they have they have like I said, several billion. They have a they have several hundred million with with a bunch of uh, reserves, and I think our numbers are are less than that. I don't think, even think we have more than a million total. Like, I think it's like a million and a half total uh, between all the service branches. Wow. So, and a lot of our military viewpoint since the 90s has been on redefining what the old strategic principle of mass was. So, whereas instead of having you know the the, the largest amount of forces wins. We were looking at the effect versus the actual numbers. So if we had the technological advantage to to take out large quantities of people and material, then we have a, a we have the advantage. Whereas 
they still believe in a kind of a combination of high technology and large numbers. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so that's pretty, pretty scary stuff at this point. Now, how about on the, on the Russian side? What, what are you seeing over there? Yeah, on the Russian side, of course, we, we still have, you know, some partnerships with the space station, which has been strained with their invasions of Ukraine and Georgia and, and other things they've been doing. Um, in addition to they're getting back into um, testing anti-satellite missiles uh, a few weeks ago, they, they tested an, a one with a kinetic intercept of an old electronic intelligence satellite they had orbiting and created some debris, which a lot of people, whenever there's either a Chinese test, which the, the Chinese tested something called a fractional orbital bombardment system, paired with a hypersonic glide vehicle, which is a lot of stuff, meaning it's basically a, a space weapon, a bombing, a bombing instrument from space, whereas the Russian instrument was from Earth to space to take out a satellite. And a lot of people, even in our own military institutions, focus a lot on the debris generation as an irresponsible act and things of that sort. But... To me, the main focus should not be on the fact that it generates debris, but the fact that that's a second and third order effect. The, the issue at hand is the fact that they can hold at risk pretty much all of our satellite systems in every major orbit uh, that there is. And that's kind of a problem that needs to be addressed from both a deterrence standpoint and from my ability to conduct warfighting operations if, if conflict um, you know, occurs at a larger scale. And I will mention that that space conflict is not something that hasn't happened yet, even though you hear that a lot in the news, that, oh, we don't know what space war looks like. Um, we have been attacked, as some of our Space Force leaders have rightly said, we've, we've, been, we've been, you know, attacked in many ways at a lower threshold pretty much every day for, for over 15, 20 years. On the jamming side, um, for example, there's, there's jamming that occurs on, on radio frequency uh, level, between commercial entities and nation states, nation states upon nation states, and nation states upon commercial entities. And you can just look at the International Telecommunications Union, which is the UN entity that kind of manages radio frequency spectrum and slots uh, with our FCC uh, on the national side. Mm -hmm. They have these reports that come out and talk about this all the time. So the fact that we've got non-kinetic like jammers, lasers, and and they're deploying these missile systems and demonstrating them for everyone to see, shows that they're they're sending signals that that they're willing to hold our stuff at risk so they know that we're reliant upon um, and our allies are reliant upon. And as a result of that, we're not, in my view, we're not responding um, in a correct manner, both with equipment and with messaging. Well, and this is something that is kind of frightening to, to me because – we, as you mentioned, we are so reliant upon our technology in just our everyday life. I mean, after all, look at uh, whenever we have a snow day here in the Washington, D.C. area and, and we lose power, you see how it shuts the, the, the system down. Or let's say we have a, a natural disaster, you know, down in Louisiana and look at look at what it does and how it, it shuts things down. I mean, and these are just natural disasters. Imagine if we had an enemy come in and overtly attack us, how difficult that would make our lives because we have really gotten to the point to where we cannot function without our technology. I mean, after all, look at people around you. If we, you lose your cell phone, you panic. Uh, people have lost the ability to read maps and, you know, and, and these are kind of silly little things, but you know, if, when you think about, you know, air travel and, and how our, uh, our 
airline industry is just so interconnected through computers and electrical grids and things like that. This could be devastating if we if we had an attack on us, right? Yeah, well, speaking of airliners, let me just mention the, the FAA has been pursuing a program called NextGen for several years now. And what NextGen is, is it takes all of the navigation aids that are ground-based, things like uh, VORs and an older system called TACAN, which I don't think they even use anymore, um, that are basically help us to have multiple redundancy for navigation. They're putting all of the navigational aids up into space using GPS um, as as the as the, the means, and so that provides some efficiencies from a standpoint of flight time and fuel and all that. But if if an adversary decides they want to jam out GPS, which there is a commercial signal and a military signal um, for the very reason that we we opened it up in the 90s as a global utility, um, that could be a serious problem. That could create you know, airliners, you know, going off course and, and other things that are even worse than that. And there's no real backup plan to that. Now, on the other hand, there are people that have been advocating that we should be less reliant upon space-powered systems. And I would say that would be wrong because, to me, that would be perceived by our enemies as retreating um, from what many people have referred to space as sort of the new high ground. Um, and it's, it's an advantage economically as well. But I, I'll give you an example also from the cyber side that we all experienced last summer, I believe it was, or the summer before. And that was when that pipeline in Maryland or someplace in the East Coast got hacked by cyber people. It was this summer, were, this past was, summer, yeah. I, I, it was affiliated with the Russians. And just one, one pipeline jacked up everybody's transportation system and cost and everything it just it messed with a lot of things and so when you affect fuel you affect the price of food you affect the price of energy you reflect a lot of different things and so um, that's why people who think oh you know this is not that big of a deal the spacing is not that big of a deal um, are frankly more than a little mistaken yeah, and I don't think that most Americans understand that. They most Americans because let's face it, people today, no offense to people born, you know, in this this era, but it's almost like they've completely forgotten about history, world history. And they have forgotten that there are dangerous nation states, there's dangerous people on the planet. There are people that are on the move that ideologically are opposed to us. Hence the need for border security and and hence for you know a lot of the things that we started to do over the last few years. But again, not trying to go down that rabbit hole. But the point is that there are still people and nations on this planet that don't like us, don't like our way of life, and basically want world dominance. And this is the new theater. And they uh, are infiltrating our systems. They are infiltrating our economy and um, frankly, infiltrating our government, and this is going to result in disaster down the road. And we have become so dependent upon our technology that that's the easy that's the easy target right now. Not easy target, but I mean the primary target. And uh, if we lose that, you know, we if we lose that dominance, then we can lose control of so many different systems that we re- rely upon, not only in our day to day lives, but even in our in our military realm as well. Yeah, so I'll start with that. That's that's a good setup for something that I was hoping to get to, and that is 
the way that we viewed space power strategy and defense and things, in, in the Cold War period, we, we understood historical analogies. We understood the development of viewpoints of the, of the then Soviet Union, now Russian Federation, and the Chinese and everything else. And we, we made sure we tried to understand our enemies uh, to a certain degree and do what's called net assessments between mm -hmm. capabilities and find their vulnerabilities. And then the 90s happened, the so-called end of history, and every, the peace was at hand, and everybody was going to like everybody, and we were the dominant, um, the dominant power, maybe the only superpower, blah, blah, blah. And as a result of that, from the next 15 or 25 years till about 07, when the Chinese demonstrated their first kinetic interceptor test, um, publicly, we kind of just had this viewpoint that space superiority was just something that was by default, and that as a result, we didn't really have to do much. It was more of a technological term than it was a military term. So rather than having the ability to control pieces of space, different orbits of space as needed, it became we have the best stuff. And you still hear that. We're the best in space. Um, and that doesn't really matter because what matters is is we may have the most exquisite, expensive satellite constellations known to mankind that can do lots of great things, but they're vulnerable. And from the Chinese perspective, for example, they believe that our, our satellite constellations, our space systems, are what they call our our, uh, our soft ribs. That's their that's their term for it. And as a result, it's super vulnerable. It's not easily defend. Space has become with the with the the resurrection, if you will, of counter space weapons, which the Soviets were pursuing and we were looking at, but we were restrained by policy. If we were trying to be the good the good actor, we were trying not to be the seen as the aggressor. And so we basically ceded the initiative in space power weapon systems to to the Russians and then they ran out of money and everything kind of rusted and went away and the Chinese weren't there yet. But we knew that they were going that direction. From the early 90s, they began working on counter space programs. And so we just figured we could bring them into the international economic system, they would be invested, and they wouldn't want to cause problems. There's a whole lot of theory behind that, which I won't bore your listeners with. But because they believe that it's an offense-dominant domain, which means it's easier to attack than defend, that and that our soft ribs is that, they're conducting what's called maneuver warfare, where they're going around our conventional superiority uh, which is even that's waning because we're at our smallest force level since World War One, uh, most of the terrestrial forces, that our conventional superiority couldn't be moved, so let's go around it and hit and target their soft ribs in space. Because our air, land, and sea forces um, are dependent upon space for their efficiencies. Because we don't have the numbers we used to have in the high and cold war because of the so-called peace dividend drawdown in the early 90s. And so because of that, and because of something else called mirror imaging, where we think, well, we won't do that, so why would they do that? Right. We we created policies over the last 25 years, uh, with the exception of the Trump administration and uh, the Bush administration, to some extent, um, the second Bush administration, that um, have been not very helpful and and more diplomatic heavy and less military uh, options have been given to the presidents because of policy. And that's put us in a, and uh, I think in a very precarious situation. Yeah, I think that's a very good point that you make. And circling back to the, the mirror imaging that you mentioned, we, a big mistake that Americans make is that we think that everyone else thinks the way that we do, right? And, and is that really not underlying the big issue here? 
Yeah, I mean, from the from both the standpoint of the Russians and the Chinese, the the Russians, you know, you think we'd be more familiar with because even though there was that Soviet period of history, the Russians have a historical um, view of things, um, and then and the Chinese as do the Chinese, yeah. Uh, in fact, the Chinese have a more unique worldview in many ways than even the Russians. The, 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 I studied the Chinese, and I and I wrote in my book *Reversing the Tao*, which examines the our China, the, the Chinese worldview and strategy in space versus our the Obama administration's national security space strategy, which still lives uh, lives on in the Biden administration's new priorities framework. So basically, we're kind of retrograding back to where we were in 2011. And I I pointed out that. That strategic thinking, if you want to even call it that, is ineffective because it it assumes a lot of things. And the Chinese have a unique worldview of themselves. They believe that they are the center of the of the international universe. They're the, the, the Chinese. The word for China in in Mandarin is the center. Means the center. And similar to the Imperial Japanese back in the hundred years ago, they believe in a hierarchical order. A collective order where the individual is secondary to the collective, and that the the Chinese role, their rightful place, as they say, is is at, at the top of the of the international power structure. So they've been dealing with what they term as a century of humiliation when the Western powers became dominant over over the Chinese dynasties. The rise of Mao and communists took over uh, from the nationalists. The interlude between both the the dynasties and the communists. And now they have um, this newer, technical, savvy sort of what they call um, uh, a command economy, but not like the Soviet command economy. It's an economics with Chinese characteristics. They always throw that phrase on everything. But they believe that, that they're, they should be at the top, not the United States. And so as a result, um, they're being very smart, and they have a long view, and they're taking their time, and it's the tortoise and the hare kind of an approach. And they believe that that they will be the, the the great China dream, as they call it, will be manifest by their centennial in 2049 um, as they reclaim lost lands and they push forward out into space. So um, this is not your average, everybody wants to get along, you want to be part of the international system. Oh, no. That, that we've been pushing since the, 90, the, the 1990s. Um, this is back to the great power struggle, which is why the Trump administration's national defense strategy focused on great power competition as the centerpiece. And now the the current administration is, is changing the words or softening the words, and they're kind of going back to that that uh, that Obama era kind of viewpoint where um, everybody's part of the international system and we all have to just address everything through diplomacy, which, you know, I don't know many military people who are anti-diplomacy, but anyone who understands history, as you mentioned, understands that that treaties and codes of conduct and and international pressure only go so far. It's only one of the instruments. That's why we have four instruments of national power. And if you have a weak military instrument, then your diplomatic instrument will be weak, and so will your information and economic instruments be weak. So as a result, we have to do all the above, but the, but the military instrument has to be strong enough to enforce any of those customary norms or things that are created over time. And a lot of that seems to be lost on a lot of the current policy uh, discussions going on in D.C. today, it seems. Well, I'm going to ask you, 
your opinion on this, and and I know that this can be a very touchy subject, but it's it's the elephant in the room. Okay. Um, th- this administration can can we just be honest here? It comes across as very very weak. I cannot be the only person on the planet that recognizes this, and I'm sure our enemies recognize this. Um, in it, looking at the the recent election that we had in Virginia, that went you know you take a blue state went back to red. And by any indication, unless something dramatically changes between now and 2022, next year, um, it looks like the Republicans are going to take the House again. And then, again, unless something very, very dramatic happens, I cannot imagine this administration coming back, uh, remaining in in the position that it's in. Um, If you were China or Russia uh, and you had your eyes set on a particular territory that you know that being Taiwan or the Ukraine do, do you do you think that this is the time are they really do you think there will be a push for them to act now knowing that there's going to be a, a political shakeup in the United States in the next few years well from a from a strategic viewpoint i i do believe that a lot of the actions that have happened in the foreign policy and strategic realm uh, have not been helpful to to say the least I will say that um, I do believe that from the Chinese and Russian standpoint that based on analyses from other think tanks like Heritage Foundation showing that the Air Force and Space Force are are weak uh, as compared to where they should be uh, as compared with our adversaries' developments of of space weapon systems and Air Forces and size and everything else and age. Um, When you look at the decision-making with Afghanistan and the way that went, yeah. Um, the, 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 the impression on our allies, the, the, um, just the, the actions of, of a lot of things just don't, don't really help, uh, the strength of NATO being questioned. So with the, I, I think you're going to see the Russians and the Chinese both exploit their opportunities, um, of weakness because for example, the, the administration's response quote-unquote, to Russians basically surrounding Ukraine, um, which I will say this. That's something else I'll just mention real quick. The fact that some of the media are saying if they invade Ukraine, they've already invaded Ukraine. They've occupied they have occupied large swaths of Ukraine, not just the Crimean Peninsula, which they, quote-unquote, annexed um, in 2014, but they also have large swaths of eastern Ukraine. They've occupied parts of Georgia. Um, so they're not about to invade. They've already invaded, but they're they're and they're still operating inside these occupied territories. But the so-called international uh, community, quote unquote, in the United States hasn't really done a whole lot. And when they say that they're going to threaten them with sanctions, um, they're not willing to defend any territory from Russian encroachment, and the Chinese um, are building islands and claiming territory and flaunting international courts of appeal and institutions on who owns what in that area from the Philippines to the Vietnamese to the Japanese to a lot of other more traditional allies like the Australians. You're, you're seeing, I think, a lot of options because they're not going to, I mean, yeah, we can sail a ship through and fly a bomber through, but as one theorist that I like that's since passed on, Therese Delpec, uh, French analyst that used to write for Rand back when Rand was a little bit better, unfortunately, than they are now. She wrote that 
part of deterrence also includes something called the status quo. And as the status quo power, the United States, meaning that we have an international order that we invest in, but our allies, we want to keep things as peaceful as possible, keep the, the, the economy and the trade and everything going smoothly. We don't want any large conflicts. We don't want any, any world wars. And as a result, we build our military and our economic power as such to keep that going. But at the same time, throughout the 90s and early 2000s and now into the 20s, we're seeing a lot of the status quo being pushed by smaller countries like the North Koreans, the Iranians, and bigger countries like the Russians and the Chinese to basically where we say, don't cross this line. They cross the line. We say, okay, well, don't cross this line. They cross the line again. And as a result, in reality, these, these powers, small and great powers, are now changing the international status quo lines on a map, and we're just saying we don't recognize those line changes. Well, right. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the fact is everyone else knows that those lines have changed. And so you may not recognize that the Russians have annexed Crimea uh, or, or they, they occupy large swaths of Ukraine and, and Georgia, but they have. And you may not want to recognize that they've taken parts of, of that. You may not want to recognize that they're deploying weapons in space. But the mere fact of the matter is they are. They have, and, they, and they're going to continue to do so. And for us to continue this mentality strategically that, that we just need to maintain what the Obama and Biden administrations call strategic restraint doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it's not doing anything. It's not deterring at all. And all it is is ceding more territory, both terrestrially and potentially um, in space, to, to these other powers that don't hold to our uh, are Republican and Democratic values. Wow. Wow. Which I think is more of a concern than the stuff that's reported on the news right now. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world and in space that aren't being reported in the news while we're focusing on things that I don't believe are near as important for the American public to understand. And the American people, all people really are dependent upon what we hear in the media. And you, you raise a larger point and that is, we are not getting the information that we need from the media right now to inform ourselves about what's going on in the world. I mean, everything. I turn on the TV right now, and all you hear about is the latest variant of Corona, the coronavirus, uh, you know, COVID nineteen, uh, all the uh, Omicron, all these different things going on. And I'm not saying that that's not important, but there are other things going on in the world, and this is one of them. And when, you know, it seems like we have these issues that are either not in the news, like the issues that you're talking about, or issues that were in the news that we no longer talk about. For example, our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the fact that we still have Americans in Afghanistan that seems to have dropped off the radar. Mm -hmm. But what do you see the impact of not having a media that pay, seems to pay attention to these issues, what's the fallout from that going to be? What's going to be the wake-up call, do you foresee? Well, this is one of the reasons why we stood up the Space Power Advantage Research Center, is to try to get the word out, um, because, as I mentioned earlier, space, space issues uh, are kind of out of sight of the mind, and from the strategic standpoint, a lot of these geopolitical, and, and then we're also thinking astro-political, um, so outside in, in space, you don't hear as much about unless you look for it. And there are there are media outlets that that report what's going on in space and around space. But 
but for the most part, the main the main press people don't really talk about it because to them it's just launching another satellite. But they don't talk about that. The other issue that we have to contend with in getting the word out to folks to understand what's going on is classification. And a lot of the stuff that we have in the, yeah. in the military realm are are very classified. And Congress recently, you know, directed again that the Space Force and others find ways to declassify some stuff to be able to better address what the concern is uh, in, in space and, and things of that sort, as well as how it ties in with other more geopolitical traditional things. But as you mentioned with the media, um, the, the broader press has kind of more gotten into the, <clears throat> the more into the tabloid journalism style of things and not so much into talking about, you know, military and political things, because like I said, for 25 years plus people have been thinking that, the age of great power wars are over and all we're going to be dealing with are little terrorist groups here and there, which is not the case and historically has never been the case. Um, there's been interludes uh, and then you get back into, you know, situations like we're in now where large countries that had been defeated had 20 years to rebuild, recover and start back into their, their old pursuits. And, um, and so I think you got to have groups like us that are out there and talking. I think we need to be willing to go and talk on more non-traditional media outlets like podcasts like this, which yeah. I do often. Um, I go on uh, space podcasts. I go on other podcasts. I've been on local TV. I've been on national TV. Um, I'll, I'll talk to whoever's willing to listen. And I've even talked to small groups in other parts of the country that are interested. And when people hear about what's going on in an unclassified sense, um, and they know where to find it, they're, they're surprised, they're concerned, they're shocked. Um, because to them, when they hear, when they heard about the space force, for example, um, in 2019, you know, the, the media spun it up as this big joke rather than something that's deadly, deadly serious. And, and even they made even a Netflix show making fun of it. Yeah. And, and while I understand, you know, you know, it, it, it can be understood and some, some people have just have considered it always to be a joke because all space warfare has been in the minds of most Americans since at least the early 90s has been nothing but science fiction movies. And so even though we were dealing with space issues, deadly serious space issues with nuclear weapons and other things during the Cold War period, we just we like I mentioned earlier, we haven't really had to think about it a whole lot. It's been more terrestrial support, more of kind of like a, a Verizon or a, or or a, a service provider kind of mentality. And so a whole generation of military general officers have been raised in this mentality of service provider, and now they have to get back into deterrence and warfighting mindset. But we're not prepared for it. We don't have the systems. We don't have the weapon systems. We don't have enough of what what little counter space means we, we have to, to address the, the sheer magnitude of what's being built and deployed by our two great power adversaries. Um, and instead of the Cold War, where we had only one major adversary. We have now two with two smaller ones besides that, the Iranians and the North Koreans, uh, both of them nuclear powers, both of them with space launch capability. Uh, and as a result, and, and both of them were sort of allied with each other. So you even have an article that came out recently where 
the Chinese and Russians that have had centuries of animosity toward each other are basically talking about how tight they are. Um, and they even do joint military exercises with each other and are looking at partnering with each other in space. And so there's only so much you can do to try to keep people friendly towards you. Um, you just have to understand that realistically, people have national interests, they have strategic desires, and those will not go away simply because um, one adversary was vanquished in one Cold War. Um, and or, you know, we can even get into whether or not the Cold War really ended or if it just went on on a hiatus for, for a couple decades. But it's it's definitely a situation where we have to take it seriously. I mean, people need to understand this is not a game. This is not a joke. Right. This is hitting your very way of life is at risk. And here's the other thing. I will say there's a guy named Eldridge Colby who wrote a book um, recently called Strategy Denial. He served in the Trump administration with me. I didn't get to know him that well, but he, he basically made the argument in some of his interviews that a lot of the reason why the American public and Congress are kind of like ho-hum about the great power competition threat with China is because over the last 25 years, since the end of the so-called first Cold War, that everything has been hyped up to be the existential threat, whether it's terrorism or viruses or whatever, that's the existential threat. That's the new existential threat. When in reality, those those are, are concerns, but they're not existential threats. Um, and the existential threat we've had seeing built up around us is that we're we are basically being surrounded from all sides, diplomatically, militarily, economically. They're using their instruments of national power wisely and smartly, and we need to start playing big boy games again and not um, just dealing with that whole maintenance of the world order mentality because we're, we're now getting to the point where we could wake up and find ourselves in a very, very bad situation, and we're not ready for it. Uh, would I be going off uh, off track here if I said I believe that we're already there? Um, I, I would say that we're, we are in a situation that we could have um, probably dealt with better decades ago. But we try to base our strategic thinking on hope and not on facts right. <laughs> on the ground. We, like I said earlier, we, we tried to base um, the 1990s and early two, in, in 2000s, even the early 2010s, on several theories that were promulgated back then, such as economic interdependence, where if people are more, if countries are economically interdependent and tied together, then they won't go to war with each other. Which, if you look at World War One, that didn't go so well. But yeah, we kind of gloss and forget that part. We try to place our trust in trees alone, which trees are great and fine, they're good instruments um, in international institutions. But again, if you look at the history of treaties uh, in some reputable books and, and studies on it, the 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 historical trends are not compliance and peace. It's, it's breach and, and conflict. Mm -hmm. And so you, you always have to be prepared militarily for stuff. You don't necessarily want that. Um, but when you have an adversary like the Chinese who your view of deterrence is an attack to deter viewpoint, not our view where we, we have a force of some sort that we can re respond with if we feel like it. Um, the, if, if the Chinese see that they're being threatened with attack, 
they reserve the right to act in what they view as self-defense. We would view it as an aggression, but they review they they have an attack to deter or an active deterrence where if they see a threat, they'll they'll shoot it. And the way they view space deterrence, which is a term that a lot of people in DC don't like, but I still I still use it because the Chinese use it, is they view space as the weak point. They view it as a place where wars can be won and you know started and won. And they view that targeting those those systems as being low threshold, meaning, you know, we won't respond with the way we've said we'd respond. So, for example, the the the, the declaratory policy, as it's called, toward the Chinese with space has been we reserve the right to respond at a time and place of our choosing in a domain of our choosing, meaning air, land, sea, land, cyber. It doesn't have to be in space they keep talking about, which is, to me, an excuse to not deal with the space issue directly and deal with the financial ramifications of, of that buildup that's necessary. And what's the historical record of us going after um, a land target or a sea target because someone laser jammed or shot at a satellite? The answer is zero. There's been no evidence of us ever responding in that way toward a space threat. Mm, that's a good point. And as a result, why would the why would any of our adversaries think that we would do. We would take that seriously when we we didn't even do that for a terrestrial threat, uh, like the red line I mentioned earlier. Where like in Syria, don't use chemical weapons. You cross the red line, we'll take action. And then they did, and we didn't do really anything with sanctions. Um, the Trump administration responded with some limited military hits, but um, at least they responded with their, with what they said. Whereas the Obama administration and the Biden administration typically seem to kind of do a lot of talking. Um, or try to redefine the threat to something that's more manageable in their minds, which doesn't reflect reality. Right. So we got to be very, very careful uh, with this because these are matters of life and death. These are not these are not games. And I think some people in the bureaucracy have kind of got into the the habit over the last 25 years of, you know, it's sort of a maintenance situation and more of a service providing thing than an actual no kidding. This is this could lead to the bringing down of a lot of the things that we've grown accustomed to over 80 years. Yeah, absolutely. And, should, and you know what? When you're talking about treaties and the breaching of, of boundaries and borders and the breaking of treaties, I mean, we only have to look at the Second World War. Um, that's exactly what happened. You know, uh, it, 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 we kept appeasing Hitler. When I say we, I mean uh, primarily England. Um, we, we just kept in France. Nobody wanted another war to break out. Uh, and many of the people that were the, the world leaders in the Second World War uh, were had been shaped by the First World War. So it was quite understandable that they did not want anything like that to erupt again. But they, it happened again because of the fact that they were so reluctant to do anything about it. And it just seems like we uh, are not um, responding. You know, it, it just threaten. You cross that line, people cross it. Okay, then you just redraw a new line. And, and it just, yeah. it's, it, we're doing that because we think that it's going to prevent uh, world catastrophe, but it may be inviting it, actually, if, if you follow that well, train of thought. Yeah, and I, and I will say, based on something you said, you said nobody wanted a war. And I would say, no, right. the Germans wanted one, the Japanese wanted one, yes. the Italians wanted one. And just because the British didn't want it, or the French didn't want it, or the United States didn't want it, it doesn't matter. You know, that's why, as Ronald Reagan once said, the, Amer the United States has never been attacked for being too strong. And 
as a result, there are people who have sort of this inverted logic in, in Washington, D.C. and other capitals that strength breeds conflict. Um, and you can even hear that in movies, like Marvel movies, like superhero movies, where we'll say that, oh, because we're strong, we, we bring challenge. No, it's the other way around. If you if you were willing to go to war to protect yourself, if someone attacks you and you're willing to annihilate them, or you're willing to damage them at least to a point where they can't hurt you for a protracted period of time again, then that usually works. That's how deterrence works. You have a capability, you have the political will to use that capability, and you communicate that to your adversary, then your friends and your people. And that's how deterrence is supposed to work. Deterrence doesn't work by some some re rejiggered definition that makes everybody feel more comfortable where we can just sit together and decide what's wrong, what's right. That's that's great, but that's never stopped a war. We, we signed a treaty in the 20s that bans war. And it's still in effect. But it's been breached numerous times. So it's like, that's why I say treaties are great. I'm not anti-treaty, but you got to be realistic with who you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. and if the history... The Russians and Chinese with treaties are not great. No, not at all. Uh, so you you gotta you gotta have the the hardware to back up and enforce these things if if you really want to have them at all. Yeah, and that's what's very scary. And you also talked about space being taken seriously, and this is something that needs to be done. And I'll, I'll just just to, and as an observer of this whole uh, space force creation from the outside. You you hit on a point, and you said that in a lot of ways that we've been conditioned to not really take this seriously because you know the American perception is that this is you know something that we've seen in science fiction movies, and um, you know this is you know something we've been working on for a while, um, and that there were like Netflix had a sitcom on on the Space Force, and you know it's been sort of treated almost like a joke when it's not a joke. And and I, I have to be honest, again, just as an observer, I don't think the Defense Department has really helped themselves in this realm. Um, you know, they kind of make it a joke themselves. You know, look at the Space Force and even the uniforms. You know, the, there, there was the latest version of the, the Space Force uniforms that came out that seemed to resemble something out of Star Trek. You know, so they kind of have been adding on to this whole perception that it's just this you know, hey, look at this. This is kind of funny when when I think that's the wrong tack to take. This is a very serious area that needs to be developed. Um, we absolutely need a space force. It needs to be developed. And I just think that they need to stop playing into that that stereotype to get the, an, an American public that's really not paying attention to pay attention and take it seriously. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, it is. They need to be taken seriously. But here's, here's the thing, though. Um, a lot of it is is the media's fault for not providing the mm -hmm. proper contacts and adding to the joke factor. Um, the military has done a pretty good job of trying to explain where things come from, and even the people in the science fiction industry, like Star Trek and stuff, they've they've acknowledged that they got a lot of their imagery from the military. It's not the other way around. And so I'll just mention a few a few things that. When people bring this up to me and they, they say, oh, the Space Force is being stupid and stuff. And and granted, you know, messaging could be a little more proactive and a little more clear. But at the same time, if you look at Air, the Air Force, the Navy, those two institutions, um, a lot of the stuff that they're using now 
go back to science fiction authors like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. And those people read those books in the 1800s and the early 1900s. Um, the idea of an Air Force was mocked before it even became. Like 100 years ago, there was a guy named Billy Mitchell, the namesake of the institute I worked mm -hmm. for, that basically arguing for preparing our country for air defenses. And at the time, airplanes could not fly more than a few hundred miles and, and, and at very slow speeds. But he knew, based on the trajectory of the technology development, what was going on in Europe and Asia and everything else, that the oceans would not be a protective cover for very long. And even then, people should have already know that the oceans were a protective cover because we had been invaded by the British in 1812. You know, we fought a war with Mexico in the on the, over the southern border. Um, but si with submarines, airplanes, um, bombing from the air, um, missiles coming out of the ocean and hitting targets on land. I mean, all that was science fiction stories back in the 1890s and 1920s. And that became the baseline of our national strategy for over 50 years. And so what you're seeing with Star Trek and, and, and other stuff like Starship Troopers, the book, not the 90s campy movie, but, you know, all these kinds of uh, Ender's Game, things of that sort, those are motivating the people who want to see that become a reality because they know it's coming. So the fact that the uniforms look a little different and just happen to look like Babylon 5 or whatever doesn't <laughs> mean that they're copying it. It's that a lot of those people that are inspired to, to defend us from space and develop the Space Force, which goes back to the 1890s, I might add, the idea of the Space Force goes at least to 1950, uh, if not 1945. And people had been talking about creating a Space Force to deal with the threat picture even before we even got into space because we knew the utility of it. Robert Goddard was writing about, you know, using space for military purposes in the 1920s. Um, Tilkovsky was talking about space in the 1890s and early 1900s in Russia. And, and the Chinese were talking about using space for many years. So but they, I think it's more of an inverted argument that people are making about, oh, look how science fiction, oh, there's such a joke. No, it's because people don't understand that science fiction is the inspiration for much of the technology that, they're, that they take for granted. Mm. Cell, phones, cell phones are based on tablets or Star Trek, essentially. Um, if you look at old pictures and old, old episodes, they're, they're talking on that. You see people using the, the wireless um, the wireless thermometers where they stick it in front of your head and it beeps and it gives you the, your temperature for all the COVID blowing. That's like the tricorders, essentially, like a, a, a very rudimentary tricorder, but it's still, it's you don't have to stick something in your mouth or other parts of your body to get your body temperature anymore. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, no, I agree with you in the sense that I think that the, the press if we had a serious press today, this would be covered. And, yeah. you know, much, much of like, you know, how uh, COVID-19 and how our approach to it has been sort of inverted when we went from the, the Trump administration to the Biden administration. I mean, after all, you have uh, the, the current administration was attacking President Trump on his approach to COVID at the time. 
Um, in fact, you you have you any any one of us can go on on YouTube and, and see the clips of Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi saying that uh, that they did not have the authority to mandate um, masks and vaccinations and, and things along those lines, and and they were saying that, and, and then and prior to that, you had Kamala Harris saying that she was never going to take a vaccine that was developed by Donald Trump, and you know on and on and on. Well, the, the same thing applies here. The Space Force was uh, introduced, you know, under the Trump administration, and I wonder how much of the fact that the the press was not covering this seriously was as a result of trying to get at Trump as opposed to um, having any other motive. I mean, it just seems like all of this has become very, very political. All of it has become political. And now, um, you know, the, the, the shame of that is, is that you have something that is very important to national security not being taken seriously, certainly not getting the coverage that it should be getting. And I, I just wonder how much of that was because of the fact that it was to an extent to an, I won't say the brainchild of Donald Trump but it was the the idea of a space force was furthered at least through the Trump administration I just don't know how much of that had to do with it well like I mentioned the Trump administration was just the first president to to push it right to, uh, to further was, the yeah, idea but the con- yeah but the Congress even Democrats in Congress were pushing it um, as early as, as I said, like the 1960s um, and the 1980s, but because of mostly Democrat uh, Party uh, folks in Congress, they our policy restrained us from going there. Um, and like I mentioned, the Soviets were building attack satellites in the 70s. They had built a fractional orbital bombardment system, which is basically a, a space-based bombardment thing um, in the 60s through the 80s. And lasers and all this stuff, and you know, strategic defense initiative with Reagan that got canceled by, uh, well, got reduced by Bush 41, and then got canceled by Clinton. Um, I mean, just all that stuff. We we were building things in the right direction. It just took a lot longer than it needed to. And we had we had lots of commissions that were congressionally mandated that said this is a good thing, and it just and, and no president wanted to do that because of the lobbying of the current services were such that they were able to convince them, nope, nope, we got it, it's good. Um, and that's part of, one of the main reasons you don't hear about um, why the Space Force was created was because the Air Force was the predominant space service for pretty much the entire existence of military space. And the management of, of, of Air Force space was not appreciated by many in Congress, including Democrat Representative uh, Cooper, and uh, Representative Rogers from Alabama, who's a Republican, and they were—they both tried to create a Space Corps in 2017, before Trump kind of took it on as a mantle in 2018. So, um, I think that shows more that President Trump was more of a visionary and understood the need mm-hmm. more than it was anything, you know, political. As as a lot of people in the press still call it a political rallying cry, just because people supported it. And we're chanting Space Force at some of his rallies doesn't mean that that's why he did it. He did it because as someone who was in the in the Pentagon during that period, because of the problem, the threat, there needed to be a service that could focus entirely 100 percent on the space problem. And a U.S. Space Command was created to be the combatant command for 100 kilometers and up and not have to be distracted with what's going on in the air, land, sea and cyber. And that's why we, that's how our defense infrastructure has been created since 1947 and then updated in 1987. And that's, and that's, that's just the way it should work. Now, 
as I mentioned earlier, the Space Force was created in an anemic fashion, I think goes to your political point. Um, and as a result, you know, with only 2.5% of the DOD budget, you really can't do anything fast. You can't deploy weapons. You can't, you know, build an organization. And you just can't. It's just not possible. So until people get serious with the resourcing and try to understand that we're not in that peace that peaceful period of the 90s anymore where we could put a bunch of money into domestic programs, we're going to have to start cutting things that are really nice to have and get back to the focus on what's what's constitutionally mandated the federal government to take care of. Yeah, yeah. In my opinion. <laughs> well, no, I, I definitely agree with you. And Christopher, this is a fascinating discussion. It really is. And, and I think it's a discussion that most Americans have not had. I know this is new information to me, and I, I found it just uh, very educational. You know, the listeners have as well. So how can they reach out to you uh, to get more information if, if they'd like? Sure. Um, if you go to the website, mitchellaerospacepower.org, I believe it is, and you look up my bios on there, um, people can reach out and ask me questions through the contact information on that website. Um, or uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, so people that, that want to try to reach out to me can try on LinkedIn. But the best way is to go through the Institute um, and contact me there. Okay, and that's uh, aer- aerospacepower.org, is that correct? It's mitchellaerospacepower.org, I believe. Mitchellaerospacepower.org, okay. Correct. And if you, or you just Google Mitchell Institute uh, for Aerospace Studies, and you'll find, you'll find it pop up, and I'm under the, the staff, on the staff page. Oh, wow. Well, well, thank you so much, and thanks for coming on and, and talking to us about this very important topic. Christopher, and um, well, I hope to have you back and talk about this some more as we move forward in this realm, because this is not going to go away. This threat, that is for yep. sure, this threat is not yep. going away. And so, Christopher, thank you so much for coming back on. And once again, folks, thank you for uh, joining me on the Mark Vine Show. And you know what? Just spread this podcast far and wide because we need to educate the American public on what's going on in this nation because, for goodness sake, we know that you're not getting the news anywhere else in the mainstream media. So hopefully you can get it here. And we want to just pass the word on to keep America strong. And uh, with that, join us on Facebook Uh, reach out to me. uh, Let me know how I'm doing. Let me know if there's topics or people that you'd like me to talk to. And reach out to Christopher Stone and uh, check him out and check out his website. Check out the great work that they're doing. And um, that way we can keep America strong and, and really just take this nation to where we need to be. This is, we are starting to trend back in the right direction, folks, because America is starting to wake up. That is for sure. That certainly happened here in the Commonwealth in Virginia. But I think that what happened here in the Commonwealth is just pointing to the direction that we are going to be moving in this country because I'm holding out hope, folks. So with that, you guys take care and we'll be talking with you soon.